Scripture this morning. We're continuing our study in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Try to stay forward a little bit. Are we good sound-wise? Oh, why it's doing that. Should I back up? Back up better? This way? Here we go. All right. And, and I get in the shade now. This is good. All right. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we ask the Lord for guidance this morning. Father in heaven, we know that this good gift of your word comes from you through your spirit to your servants and to us. And we know that we cannot understand it if your spirit does not give us understanding. So Lord, give us understanding this morning. Would you help us, Lord? Help me? Would you take away any, any sense of recognition or self-glory that I might have standing here in front of your people preaching your word so that they can hear you clearly and not me? Lord, would you help us to savor every word that you've given us so that we can know Christ better, so we can know your kingdom better. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, if you were here with us, and, and just to let you know, if you're new, what we do here is we go through the Bible verse by verse by verse. And so we've been in the book of Matthew for a couple years now, and we are up to Matthew chapter 20. Last week, we were at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew 20, and we saw in that text spiritual pride, and it was welling up in the hearts of the disciples. And Jesus very quickly addressed the issue. This week, what we see welling up in the hearts of the disciples 
isn't so much spiritual pride, but spiritual ambition. They have a desire for greatness. And just as quickly, Jesus addresses the sin that's in their hearts. What Jesus is doing is making disciples out of them. He's taking these followers of his that he's called, that the Lord has brought to him, and he's teaching them what it means to follow him. That's what disciple making is, isn't it? It's showing people, first of all, Jesus is the Messiah. He is king. And then second of all, it's teaching people how to follow him, how to obey him. To give you some context of, of our passage this morning, what's going on here is Jesus and the disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. You probably noticed that. Most likely, you don't see this as clearly, but most likely there is actually quite a crowd following Jesus. And the reason is, is because if we're tracking with the Jewish calendar, many of these people are on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Matthew doesn't describe this explicitly. He, he assumes that we understand this because most of, his, most of the people he was writing to would have been Jewish. And these Jewish people in the first century reading this gospel would know that at this time of the year, people from all over the region would be going to Jerusalem for Passover. So if you can imagine the scene, as we're reading this, Jesus and the disciples are on the road, but they're not alone. And at the very least, we know this. We know that James and John's mother was there because we see her. So they're not alone. And that's why in verse 17, as we get into the text, Matthew says, as they were going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the disciples aside. He has to take them aside from the crowd there's still private teaching to be, done, to be done. There's still things that the disciples don't know yet, that they don't understand yet, that Jesus has to teach them. And he teaches them. And he teaches them for the third time now that he's going to be killed and then raised up on the third day. That's, that's what this Jerusalem trip for Jesus is all about. Now he taught us that. He taught the disciples that back in chapter 16. And then he taught it again in chapter 17. And now here in our text for the last time, the third time, before it actually happens, we get this message again. Look at verse 18 of our text. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus says he's going to be delivered over. First to the chief priests and the scribes, those are his own people. They will condemn him to death. And then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's, that's another way of saying the nations. And they will mock him and flog him and crucify him. So, so in both of these cases, notice how Jesus is, is totally helpless. As we read in Isaiah 53, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's delivered over. You cannot get lower than this. Nobody wants him. His own people don't want him. The nations don't want him. Everyone hates him. He's at the bottom of the bottom of humanity, and he's going to be crucified like a criminal. That's what he's teaching his disciples. And then after that, he'll be raised. And the way that Matthew records this even his resurrection seems lowly. Even it is passive. He will be raised. He doesn't raise himself. Rather, he is raised 
by someone else. Now, this passage is important for two big reasons. I mean, this is the third time we've seen this, so it's got to be important, right? Here's the first big reason. The first is this. From the perspective that Matthew is continuing to prove to all of his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, this third reminder of Jesus' death is a reminder that this isn't going to happen by accident. It isn't a mistake. It's not... It's not something that that Matthew just snuck in after the fact to try to cover up for the the death of Messiah later. No, Jesus predicted his death. He even predicted exactly how it would take place and it didn't, didn't happen by surprise. And the way that he predicts it three times is as if to say, I promise, I promise, I promise, verily, 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 This is definitely, definitely, definitely going to happen. So at this point, as we are reading Matthew's gospel together, it would almost be more of a surprise to us if these things didn't take place when we finally do arrive at Golgotha. Well, the second reason that this passage is important is is what we're going to dwell on for the, the rest of our sermon. This is an ongoing discipleship issue for the disciples. I want you to think about the context of this passage. So think about last week and this week. At the intersection of a passage last week that shuts down spiritual pride and one that this week corrects spiritual ambition where those two things come together is is here at the cross. The king of the heavenly kingdom is going to be scorned by the world and crucified. And so that should lead us to ask this question. It should be leading the disciples to ask this question. How could we possibly be contemplating our own greatness or what we think we deserve and at the same time really comprehend that Messiah is going to be crucified? Those two ideas don't really mesh, do they? It's impossible The humiliating crucifixion of Christ is at the center of what it means that he is the Christ. And it's at the center of what it means to follow him. And yet, once again, the disciples totally miss it. Yet again, as the words are still hanging in the air, they ignore what Jesus is saying and they come at him with this question. Who's going to be at his left hand and who's going to be at his right hand? They're so obsessed with those thrones that we learned about last week in chapter 19. They can't stop thinking about the thrones. And now they're wondering who gets to sit on which thrones? What's the seating arrangement? Who gets to sit closest to the king? Who's going to be at his left and who's going to be at his right for everybody else to see? They know, everybody knows Jesus is going to be at the center But who gets to use Jesus for their own recognition, for their own glory? Who gets to use Jesus so that they get to be noticed by other people? Well, in the way that Luke tells the story, if you read Luke's gospel account, it's pretty clear that this question that the disciples ask, or rather that, and we'll get to it in a minute, Mrs. Zeppedee asked, It's clear that the disciples had been vying over these positions for actually quite some time now. It just so happens 
that James and John, these sons of Zebedee, are the first to actually ask about these positions. They, they beat everyone else to the punch. Except, you noticed, they're not the ones who ask the question, are they? James and John have their mother take the request to Jesus. And if you're wondering why their mother takes the request, and you're expecting me to have some great profound answer, I'm going to let you down. No one really knows what's going on here because Matthew doesn't say. All, all we can do is speculate. And there's some pretty good speculations out there. We can assume that Matthew's readers understood what was happening. One, one theory that has kind of gotten tossed about is that Mrs. Zebedee was actually related somehow to Jesus' mother. Maybe she was a cousin or an auntie or something. But given that relationship, it, it might have been expected that the closest relative who was elder to Jesus would be the one that would come to Jesus with this request. Others say, well, well maybe James and John were thinking if we have mom ask, Jesus is more likely to say yes, right? We're more likely to say yes to someone who reminds us of our mother. Another, another possibility is, is that this is an echo of 1 Kings chapter 1. So if you don't know 1 Kings chapter 1, what happens there is Solomon's mother approaches David in order to try and ensure that her son would be the next king. Since Jesus is the Davidic king, he's the Messiah, this could be an echo of that episode. Maybe just a little flashback. The scene is actually pretty similar. The mother goes into the presence of the king. She bows down before him. And then the king says, what do you want? And it's almost exactly what happens here, isn't it? Just that little snippet is almost exactly what we see Mrs. Zebedee doing and Jesus doing. She bows down before him and he asks, what is your desire? What do you want? Really, we don't know though. The, the mother taking the request is actually such a small detail that in Mark's account of this, he doesn't even include it. He doesn't even bother to include this in the account of the episode. And even here in Matthew, you've probably noticed, Jesus sees through the request. He knows that it's not actually the mother asking the question. He knows that it's the source of this question is James and John. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus answered, you, and, and we can't see this in the English, but the you here is plural. It's a plural you, a you guys, or, or y'all. It'd be more like, you guys don't know what you are asking, are you two, are you both, able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And then they said to him, we are able. So Jesus asked the question of James and John, and James and John reply. So they know he's talking to them. He knows that they were talking to him through, through their mom. Now he tells them they don't know what they're asking because they don't. Do they? They don't understand the cross yet. They don't know what it means to sit at Christ's left and right when he is king. Matthew's going to show us a little bit later on. When you get to Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is hung on the cross. He's crucified. And Matthew points out he was between two robbers, one on his left and one on his right, who were crucified with him. 
So to sit at Jesus' left and Jesus' right is not the place of honor that James and John think that it is. It's a place of shame in the eyes of the world. James and John do not know what they're asking for. And then Jesus goes on. The second part of his reply is to ask these brothers if they can drink of the cup that he will drink. And we are able, they said. But again, they don't know what they're saying. They haven't been paying attention. If they had been listening to Jesus... If they had been hearing him talk about the condemnation that he's going to receive from their own Jewish leaders, and then the mocking and the flogging and the death that's going to come from the Gentiles, they might have paused at least, at least for a few seconds. They might have thought a little bit harder before they said, we are able to drink from that cup. But they're not listening to him, are they? They've got tunnel vision, those thrones, those thrones. I want those thrones. That's all they're thinking about. It's, it's harder to listen to Jesus than we think it is. We, we look at James and John and, and, and we, because we're going so slowly through the text, we think, oh, they, they've totally missed it. It's obvious that they've missed it. Matthew makes it obvious that they've missed it. But even for us now, even when we read our Bibles and the words are plain on the page, what happens when we read it? We read what we want to read. We hear what we want to hear. How many times have you been reading the Bible and you've rushed to some conclusion? You've rushed to what you were expecting to see rather than what was actually in the text. Just as an example, think of Romans 8. Many of us, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for, for any length of time, you probably know Romans 8.28, right? You might have memorized it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? That's a memory verse. That's a precious promise. But how many of us cling as tightly to Romans 8.17? where Paul says that we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Same chapter, still Romans 8. In fact, it is the context of God working all things together for good. God works our suffering towards our good, towards our sanctification. That's the lesson. And yet, what do we do when we read Romans chapter 8? We skip the suffering part. We go straight to the promise. We skip the cross. We go straight to the thrones. When, when we come to the Bible with what we want it to say, we often read that desire, that want, into Scripture. And what happens to us then is, is we skip over the stuff that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit our imagined world of what Christianity is. And so we skip over it and then we miss on a precious opportunity to be transformed by God's Word. We try to transform the Scripture into our mold rather than allowing it to transform and fashion us into Christ. 
So I want to challenge you this year. It's still the beginning of the year. Some of you haven't stopped reading your Bibles yet. If you're, if you're committing to read God's Word this year, and you should, I want you to do this. Read slowly. Read carefully. Listen carefully. Don't read your expectations into the Bible. Oh, I've heard this story before. I'm going to skim past it. No, slow down. Don't read the Bible asking, what does this mean for me? Read the Bible with this question, what does this mean? Prayerfully set aside the biases that you don't even know you have. Take off your glory glasses and let God's word totally surprise you this year. Let God speak and then savor every single word. Rather than making the mistake of James and John, rather than assuming that cup means what you want it to mean, take the time to ask the question, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you mean, drink this cup? And by asking good questions of the text, we're going to get good answers. We'll understand God's word more completely and the gospel more more fully. And that's when you really begin to be transformed by the spirit through the word of God. So let's just practice that here. Second Sunday of the year. Let's do that with our text. What does Jesus mean by drink of my cup? Let's ask that question. We aren't there with James and John to ask him, but we have the entire scripture. So let's use it. Well, let me just show you how we would study this. The context of our passage, remember we just read this stuff about the crucifixion. So the context of our passage is Jesus teaching the disciples that he's going to suffer. And that suffering comes through being delivered over. And if you're asking that the right questions, you're going to get good answers. There's a clue for us. The cup then has something to do with suffering. And now we ask, who delivers over Messiah? So we're thinking about delivering over. We're thinking about suffering. Who delivered Messiah over to the chief priests and the scribes? Well, in our whole Bible context, when we read Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the people on Pentecost, and really that is just probably eight weeks from what we're reading right now. And Peter says this, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who delivered Jesus over? God did. So, so it's God who delivers him over, which tells us God is sovereign over Messiah's suffering. God intended it. He planned it. He ordained it to happen this way. So now we've got suffering, God's plan. We've got a cup here somewhere. And now we've got to think about Old Testament stuff. This type of God ordained suffering in the Old Testament usually is judgment from God. This is judgment language. So now we're looking for places where a cup and suffering and God's judgment all come together and we get Psalm 75 for one. 
There's this cup of foaming wine of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, probably more to the point, echoing Psalm 75, Isaiah 51 talks about Israel's suffering because they had received the cup of God's wrath. So now we have this strong biblical evidence that the cup that Jesus is being given is the cup of God's wrath. He's the stand-in for Israel. So when Jesus knowingly says he's going to drink from this cup and he's asking James and John, will you drink from this cup with me? Are you able? He's asking if they can drink from the cup that God's God is pouring out on his people, the wrath that God is pouring out on his people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the substitute. I'm going to drink it. Will you follow me? Will you suffer with me? This is, this is the cup that Jesus talks about in, in Gethsemane. Jesus begs of the Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. And at that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is struggling with the weight of the cup, the bitterness of its contents, where are James and John who said, we are able, they're sleeping. They don't understand what they're asking. They don't understand the cup. The only way that we can possibly understand Messiah's rule is to understand his suffering. And the only way that we can share in his rule is to share in his suffering. The disciples at this point understand neither of those things. Their their sinful desire to use Jesus for their own glory is corrupting even their ability to hear Jesus, to understand him. And here's the thing. Every one of us here gathered on this patio is exactly like that. All of us are like this. Each one of us has in us a desire for others to think highly of us. And whenever we use Jesus for that end, like the disciples, we are expressing that very same sin. This is something that that I have to constantly be wary of. Because I preach, I teach in front of people. I have to be wary of this desire in my heart, this desire to be noticed or desire to be liked or praised by others. And somebody has to teach, right? It's the way that God has ordered the church. But as a pastor, I have to be careful to discern what my motives are. And I don't do that well. And that's why God, for the protection of his church, has ordained that there be more than one leader in the church. It's why he has commanded that there be a plurality of pastors. If I didn't have other pastors serving alongside me, I would be in much greater danger. And so would the church. Both of the men who work with me as your pastors are willing, by the grace of God, to rebuke me and to correct me whenever I'm out of line. That's a gift to me. That's a gift to you as a church. Lord willing, God will raise up more men to pastor alongside us. But but you all know this. It's not just pastors, preachers who have to watch out for this desire of recognition. 
Anybody who's ever led a Bible study has to watch out for this. Or taught Sunday school, you have to be wary of this. People who like to sing, people who are good at singing have to be wary of this. Even people who aren't good at singing have to be wary of this. If you, if, you, if you like to play instruments, if God has gifted you with musical ability, you have to be wary of this desire. In fact, serving in any public way, whether that's making meals in the kitchen or serving the homeless or being an usher or a deacon or a greeter, our sinful hearts have the surprising ability to corrupt anything, don't they? Don't we? We will corrupt anything towards our ends if we know that someone else might possibly see what we're doing. So I want to say this, if if that's happening in you, and I know it's happened to me, if you can discern any sinful ambition in yourself, brothers and sisters, do this this morning. Allow the Spirit to correct that in you. Confess your sin to another brother, to another sister in the church. Repent and ask the Lord to increase your faith so that your most basic desire would not be your own glory, but Christ's glory. Let's keep going. Jesus is going to further correct this self-glorifying mindset for us. So let's listen to him. Look at verse 23. He says to them, you will drink my cup, But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. So first, he promises James and John, they get what they want. They're going to drink this cup. They don't know what it means, but it means they will share in Christ's suffering. And this does happen. James is killed. He's the first apostle killed in Acts chapter 12. And then John... His brother will undergo various persecutions, arrests, eventually exile. Both of these men, because of their identity in Christ, they will share in his suffering. They will drink his cup. So Jesus' promise is fulfilled. He goes on to say, though, that how they will be honored isn't really for him to decide. Where they sit in those thrones, that's not up to him. That decision belongs to the Father. And and then he even says that it's already been prepared by the Father. So in the same way that the Father has already ordained the suffering of the Son, he's already ordained the seating arrangements of the Twelve. And with that, Jesus settles this burning question that the disciples have, but he's not done teaching them. Because now he's going from answering the question to really correcting the heart behind the issue. And we're going to see this in verse 24. Look at verse 24. What we see in verses 24 and 25 is two negative effects of this desire for self-glory. Two reasons not to pursue it. In verse 24, we see that a desire for self-glory disrupts the unity of the believers. This is the first time in the Bible that this has happened. Even before the church is established, we see a division among Christ's followers. The ten become indignant towards the two. You see that happening? Here's how it happened, and here's how it happens in the church. When we use Christ, when we ambitiously use Christ for our own glory, it divides the church. Always. 
Even, even if just a little bit, there's always division in the church when one person desires their own recognition above Christ's glory. And then we see, if you read the rest of the New Testament, all of the disciples write to these churches that are planted and they warn against this type of ambition. The Corinthian church, if you read First and Second Corinthians, the Corinthian church was divided primarily because some people desired to use their gifts in a more visible, a more prominent way so they would be recognized by others. So Paul writes them to correct them because he doesn't want to see division in the church. The Roman church had the same problem. The churches that Peter writes to have this same problem. And in each case, the apostles carefully and deliberately respond to the churches and tell them, use the gifts that God's given you. I'm summarizing here. But recognize that those gifts are for the building up of the body, not you. The gifts that God gives his church are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ into Christ, into Christian maturity, not for individual self-promotion. So secondly, we see in verse 25 that a desire for self-glory has another problem. Jesus says it's a worldly desire and it always leads to the oppression of people. Jesus called them to him. So he sees the division happening amongst the disciples and he immediately calls them over to him to correct them. He says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. To be great in the kingdom of the world, what Jesus is saying, is to lord it over people. And we know that. Right, we, we all instinctively know that. Even little kids know this. You can't do this right now, but next year, watch kindergartners on the playground. Just watch what they do. The, the kids with more confidence, the ones who are a little bit bigger, probably a little bit older, the ones with the newer clothes and the name brand shoes, how do they treat the other kids? Pretty lousy. They, they make fun of them. They use their position on the social ladder for their own glory. They make fun of the others and, and try to impress the first graders who are trying to impress the second graders who are trying to impress the third graders. And they all do that by lording it over the other kids. That's just how people are. It doesn't stop in kindergarten. This continues all the way into adulthood, from the playground, to the boardroom, to social media, to mass media, to every government everywhere that ever was. We don't stop. We don't ever stop being like this. This is just the way that we are. It's the way that the world works. Welcome to Babylon. In fact, we have an entire industry that helps you navigate this world, don't we? Leadership books are written about it. Self-help books are written about it. You can go to seminars and conferences and you can hire personal coaches. It's just some people make their living coaching people on how to get ahead in the world. And the further ahead you are, by definition in the world, the more people you have underneath you serving you. And all of this, takes place, the reason why it's this way in the world is because of sin. 
Adam and Eve's ambition to be equal with God, to be great in the world. That's what led them to their sin. At Babel, a few chapters later in Genesis, it was the ambition to build a tower to reach God so that they could go up to him. They could be equal with him. That's what got, brought God's punishment. This corrupted desire for greatness is at the very heart of our sin nature, and it has not gone away. But that's just what greatness in the world is. This is the only way the disciples understand greatness. That's just the air that they breathe. And Jesus is teaching them over and over and over again. Disciples, the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of the world. And again, the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of the world. He has to tell them again and again and again. Do you understand that, church? In your heart of hearts, do you understand that Christ's kingdom is different from the world? I think, I think we know that Christ's kingdom isn't like Russia. Right? I'm sorry if you're from Russia. It's not like China. It's not like Iran. But did you know that Christ's kingdom isn't like America either? We need to be reminded of this. The kingdom of heaven is totally distinct. It's totally separate. Christ's kingdom is invisible and heavenly and seen only through the eyes of faith. Whenever we try and make that kingdom visible and earthly so that the world can see it, what we do is we use earthly means and we speak in earthly languages and we end up creating an imitation. And ultimately, we fail to communicate what the kingdom of heaven is actually about. Being a citizen in Christ's kingdom means unlearning everything we know about what it means to live in this world. Our minds have to be totally renewed. We've said this over and over and over again. But our minds have got to be completely renewed to think right thoughts about the kingdom, to say right things about the kingdom. Unlike the world... This is the point that Jesus is getting at. Unlike the world, greatness in Christ's kingdom does not mean you have people serving underneath you. It doesn't mean you're being noticed. It doesn't mean that you're being admired by others. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven means that in this world, you are at the very bottom. And you serve everyone else. And you're scorned by the world while you're there. Look at verses 26 and 27. This is where Jesus corrects them. It shall not be so among you. What shall not be so? Worldly greatness. Lording it over others. That's not the way in the kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And that word servant here, in the Greek, the original language this was written in, that is diakonos. And that's a word that will later be used to describe those who serve in the church, deacon. But when we think servant here, don't think of how you traditionally think of deacons. Instead, think of deacons in the way that you think that Jesus means by servant. At the bottom, the bottom of the barrel servitude. 
That's the, the model of a deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And by slave, Jesus means slave. Someone who's bought and sold in the marketplace or, or in the way that, that things would have worked in those days, captured by an enemy army and then sold or held on to and made to work for the master. These people were the lowest of the low in society. And then Jesus tells us our model for this kingdom ethos is Jesus himself. Look at verse 28. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Means he, would, he didn't come to have people underneath him. He came to be at the bottom and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, the Son of Man, Messiah, came to serve. And what did that service look like? He gave his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom, that's the, that's the price that you, would, that you would pay to purchase a slave. You would purchase someone out of slavery by paying their ransom. The lowliest servant, what Jesus is showing is the lowliest servant in the world is the ransom who gives his life to redeem us from slavery to sin. You see the connection there? And that's our model for kingdom greatness. And because Jesus did that, he is now first and greatest in his kingdom. None of us can do what Jesus did because none of us can stoop as low as he did. None of us began as God to become man, to go to the cross. Jesus did. Jesus is the new Adam, the better Adam, the anti-Adam. Adam wanted equality with God, and so because of that ambition, he disobeyed God and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he fell and brought all of humanity down with him. Jesus did the opposite. He went from equality with God, what Adam wanted. Jesus goes from equality with God to the very bottom of creation, the cross, and God raised him up. That's what makes Jesus first in the kingdom. That's what makes him greatest in the kingdom. This is what makes Jesus worthy of worship. In fact, it is this act of Christ that earns him his praise. In Revelation chapter 5, some of us have been studying Revelation on Tuesday nights. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 says this, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why are you worthy? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See the connection? What makes Christ worthy of worship? What makes him greatest in the kingdom? He was slain. And that's why we praise him. In Philippians 2, we see the exact same thing happening. Paul says, In being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his death on the cross... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He has made him greatest. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the connection? It is the cross of Jesus Christ that makes him so great. Because it is through the cross that he ransomed us and purchased us from our slavery to sin so that we could freely follow him and worship him. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, this is the reason you should be. Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your obedience because of what he's done. I hope you see that. In your wrestling, if you're not quite sure whether or not Jesus is the way, when you're wrestling between the world's ways of viewing things and Christ's way, know this. Any other religion or philosophy or system of thought that you will find in the world will depend on your work and what you can accomplish. It all depends on your greatness. And Christianity is totally different. In Christianity, your salvation, your success depends 100% on Christ's humility. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. His death to redeem his people, to ransom his people, is ultimately what earned him the right to be called king. His death has freed you, freed you from bondage to sin. And so the only right response is to repent of your allegiance to the world and its ways to be baptized into his kingdom and then follow him the rest of your life. That's the right response for all of us this morning. Because we can never outserve Jesus our act of worship is what we see in Romans 12.1, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship, Paul says. We become slaves to God. We do like the Son of Man did. We can't do what Jesus did for us, but we can give up our lives of self-service to be his servants and worship him and honor him and serve him so that he would be glorified in us. That is the Christian way. That's what it means to follow Christ.